Sunday double. Grab Good morning. It is uh, 3CR Wednesday breakfast on this 18th of October. And who calls at this time in the morning, really? My mother. Happy of birthday. <laughs> oh, Gosh, that is why she's calling. She's My mum's actually in Switzerland at the moment as well, so I have no idea what time it's oh, in. Oh, Switzerland. Gosh, uh, you did just hear from Earth Matters uh, between 6.30 and 7 o'clock. And uh, if you want to catch up on Earth Matters, 3cr.org.au is the place to go. And you can find their podcast or you can hear them again live uh, on. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking everywhere. It's uh, what, what day is Earth Matters on? Is it a Saturday? No, nobody's got any ideas. Yeah, well, no, yeah. I, look, Sorry, oh, no, there we go. Sunday mornings from 11 o'clock is Earth Matters Live. Uh, or you can hear morning. it here, 6.30 on a Wednesday morning. How are you doing, guys? <laughs> doing very well. I'm a lot better for having this party hat on top of my head. <laughs> We're trying to adjust our party hats with our headphones, and uh, it's quite the skill. So it's Nick's birthday. Hey, birthday, Nick. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> if you hadn't picked that up already. Um, also, uh, heading for a top of 30 degrees today. Is it's it going to be beautiful, yeah. Yesterday Sunny. was 28 or something, wasn't it? So. But it's not sticking around. 24 and possible storms and showers tomorrow, and then 17 for Friday and partly cloudy. So really sounds getting, about right. Sounds yeah, about right. Getting all of spring in one yeah. uh, one week period. The Melbourne sea salt. It's it'll keep you dip, dancing um, <laughs> and keeping all things on and off your body. Keep the water off and keep the sun in. What have we got coming up <laughs> on the show today? Um. What do we have later on in the show? Um, so last weekend or this weekend just gone, I spoke with Mike Reynolds, the founder of Earthships, um, up at King Lake, um, and he's touring around Australia. So I talked to him about that, uh, you know, that building style, his technology, and um, kind of where it came from. So we we hear from that chat later on. And which the, is this is going on from the last person we spoke to about yeah. uh, Daryl Taylor. Daryl, that's yeah, right. Yeah, so Daryl Taylor came in a couple of weeks ago and spoke to us about his Earthship in King Lake, um, and you know. The fight to get that built after the fires and we'll get it approved after the fires um, through council, which took five years, and mm. now it's finally being built. So it's probably it's probably an eight year project for Daryl. And this oh. is what Mike is coming down to help with, part, well, partly. Mike's coming for a tour, and he went to King Lake to check it out because yeah. he'd been there before at the beginning, and it was his plans, um, which so was changed a few times. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, also hearing a bit later from the uh, general manager from another radio station. <laughs> We're getting her in. Uh, her name's Tess. She's from uh, the Student Youth Network or SIN on 90.7 FM. Um, I uh, have volunteered there in the past. I don't know if you guys ever you been have along to, to be, SIN? You have to be under 25. 25. I remember yes. like I wanted to at some stage and it was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, you're passed. too old. <laughs> and they were, like, they were like, no, sorry. Um, but they have been, they've been around for ooh, since the early 2000s or late. 90s um, and they've been in the same spot just across the road from um, uh, which is uh, what's the, the theatre restaurant uh, the one in near RMIT I can't remember Dracula? the name of the Dracula's thank you and they're moving they're moving because there's a lot of work going on around that area of yeah. course RMIT is upgrading yeah. around um, Swanston Street there's the new train station going in uh, so Cine moving to new studios and they're doing a bit of a fundraiser at the moment so we thought we'd get them get her in and have, have a little bit of a chat see what's going on in the rest of the community radio world God you've been doing radio for a while if you were there under 25 because you must be something like like... Uh, 31? <laughs> <laughs> 
There it was. Live on air. <laughs> Two, according to this uh, cake and candles we've got here. And, um, and, and we've got a common ground. Hopefully we've got some poetry live to air oh. towards the end of the show, which will be nice. There's been some a lot of work done in series of workshops that's taken place over the last two months across Victoria. And a few of them are coming in as well from Common Ground. Yeah, a few of them are going to come in and talk about the process and why they got together and what they learned from the experience. Fantastic. But first up this morning... We have a program that was run or an interview that was run on In Your Face that happens on every Friday. Um, And it's about the New South Wales government recently passed new legislation with possible punitive measures for the transmission of HIV, including prison sentences in some instances. Um, We're going to listen to three CRs in your face. Presenter Jack McKenzie speak. He's a speaker and a writer living with HIV and speaks with an advocate, Nick Hollis, about about the new legislation and its implications for people living with HIV. On the line, we have writer and living with HIV advocate Nick Hollis. Welcome, Nick. Hi, James. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Nick, the new law in part focuses on the disclosure of a person's HIV status. What does the new law in New South Wales say about disclosure and the transmission of HIV? Uh, well, the, the new changes to the Public Health Act, and, and let me start by saying that you know, some of these changes are really excellent. They're things that you know, the community has been advocating for for a long time. Uh, actually remove the disclosure requirement, which brings New South Wales in line with other states such as Victoria, where you're no longer required to disclose your HIV or STI status uh, as long as you take reasonable precautions. Um, and that's you know, by no means a bad thing. The, the uh, uh, onus of responsibility being squarely on the positive person to disclose their status uh, as a measure of keeping everyone safe uh, doesn't work and creates more stigma. And what we want to create is a sexual culture where people uh, take care of themselves and one another uh, through better and safer sex practices. So that's, you know, generally uh, a good thing and something that people have been advocating for for a while. So, Nick, uh, what the, are some of those reasonable precautions under the Act? How does it define well, them? Well, this is the really tricky thing. In Victoria, uh, it's mainly around, um, you know, condoms uh, and also possibly having an undetectable viral load, which... Um, not of your listeners, not all of your listeners might fully understand, but we're, as an HIV positive person uh, who is on effective treatment, uh, it is uh, uh, impossible uh, for me to pass on my HIV to someone else, and that's uh, that's finding that has been um, uh, confirmed uh, by series, a series of, of studies all around the world, and is now endorsed by the World Health Organization. Um, but uh, in New South Wales, it's still because this is also new. It's still very much up for discussion. And in the last couple of days, we've seen some draft versions of what um, uh, these reasonable precautions could be. They include, of course, using condoms, uh, having an undetectable viral load, uh, checking that your partner is on PrEP, which is pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is like the pill that HIV-negative people take to prevent from um, from uh, acquiring HIV, uh, all the way through to doing things like ensuring that if you have an STI, it's cleared, or if you have an STI in a specific part of your body, you don't have sex using that part of your body. You mentioned earlier that the law puts the onus on the HIV-positive person. Why do you think the law has been constructed in that way? Uh, well, these laws hark back to a time when HIV and AIDS 
was uh, you know, devastating uh, various communities in Australia, um, the majority of which at the time was uh, gay and bisexual men. Um, so a lot of these laws are built up for around that very terrible time of fear and stigma, and the law has not moved uh, with science and with social progress. Um, and so that's why you have laws such as this. Um, and whilst you know Victoria uh, is doing a lot better uh, than New South Wales um, in certain things, you know in Victoria it's still um, illegal to be a sex worker who is HIV positive, for example. That's not the case in New South Wales. So there's still a lot of really old bad laws on the books there. Um, not to mention a culture of law enforcement and policing and judicial processes, which are incredibly uh, unfair, unkind and judgmental uh, towards the positive person. So give us some examples of that. For example, how feasible is the enforcement of this new law and, and what well, would that involve? Well, at this stage, we don't know. The, the difficult thing around this, and, and if we look historically uh, at where HIV criminalisation has been in place, it has... Uh, affected a, a broad range of communities. Um, it, it has come down harsher on uh, migrant men who, uh, who are having heterosexual uh, contact uh, with women. Uh, it's also come down heavily on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, uh, as well as, in some instances, uh, gay men and queer men uh, and trans women. Um, you know, there, there aren't dozens and dozens and dozens of cases over the years. Um, uh, in regards to this specific change, uh, where the maximum penalty is an $11,000 fine and or six months in prison, uh, it's going through the Public Health Act. Now, the good thing about that is that cases uh, brought in front of the Public Health Act start with a tribunal of uh, learned individuals who are um, connected to the health department and the HIV and STI and the bloodborne virus sector, um, and they hear everything. Uh, and there is a series of responses uh, that need to occur um, and needs to go up the chain before um, this kind of maximum penalty comes into play. Um, but, you know, we, we look at uh, the Victorian example, Section 19A, which was one of the HIV-specific um, uh, laws in the Criminal Code uh, that was never actually enforced in its many years of existing. But all these laws have to do uh, is hang over a community for them to have a negative effect and a seriously stigmatising effect. Um, uh, one of the great problems with HIV criminalisation uh, is that uh, anyone can be accused by, um, a, for example, an angry ex-lover or even in some cases, especially with women, an abusive lover who will, um, who will threaten uh, going to the police um, and enacting HIV criminalisation. Uh, in order to uh, uh, um, maintain their abusive relationships. Uh, not only that, there's a whole world of fear and stigma that hangs over us. So it's not necessarily that these laws are enacted, but that they exist, that that's a problem. Nick, give us an example of the kind of scenario where a person could be imprisoned for transmitting HIV under the new legislation in New South Wales. Under the Public Health Act? Yes. Uh, so it would be that someone, uh, so if they don't take reasonable precautions, so um, in this instance, for example, they might not be able to maintain an undetectable viral load or they didn't use a condom uh, and they clearly didn't disclose, uh, 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 their sexual partner could either find out about this um, and be incensed uh, that this has taken place, um, despite them possibly not asking the questions themselves and not taking... Well, full responsibility for their own actions, um, that that person could then raise a complaint uh, either through a health department or a health official um, and the targeted person would be, um, would be located and tracked down, say, by the health department 
and would be possibly called in for questioning. Uh, if that person continued to, say, ignore the advice of a health department, um, say, for example, they were a, in a particularly chaotic period of their life, they were having uh, mental health problems or any some such uh, confluence of things that could uh, parlay into them uh, repeatedly not taking um, the advice and direction of the health department, they could then uh, be directed to a magistrate and the police and be put in prison. How enforceable is the new law? I imagine uh, health departments, including in New South Wales, have some fairly sophisticated measures for tracking people with HIV and, of course, our mandatory reporting um, from doctors when someone seroconverts. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing about monitoring individuals is that, thankfully, um, even though HIV is a notifiable um, disease, uh, individuals can't be monitored. There's no identified database of people living with HIV. So whilst we are absolutely monitored and tracked as a key population, our individual actions and movements aren't tracked, um, which is a good thing um, because of the implications then on privacy and testing that, that would have. Um, that certainly, you know, and I, and I know this uh, because I know some of the people on the panel in New South Wales or, or have been on the panel, um, you know, it is a um, empathetic understanding for the most part collection of people who are very learned and very informed. Um, so it's, it's not necessarily that there uh, is a suddenly a huge risk for every positive person in New South Wales, anyone who visits New South Wales who is HIV positive, um, who is going to be potentially um, uh, feel the brunt of this punitive sentence. As I said before, it's much more about uh, the fact that these uh, punitive uh, measures and this very heavy handed charges uh, hang over a community and uh, behaviour modifying and actually limit the way we can form and enjoy relationships. And that's a massive problem. I was going to ask you uh, along those lines, to what extent is this new legislation perhaps a disincentive for people to get tested for HIV just because of the kinds of scenarios you just mentioned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, that's, that's something we see uh, all around the world is that when heavy handed or blunt tools uh, of the law uh, are used in a way that affects and impacts HIV-positive people, there it can and, and often does have an impact on testing rates because, uh, as with uh, these new changes to the Public Health Act and with other HIV criminalisation uh, examples, if you don't know that you're a person living with HIV, you can't be charged because you don't have that information. Um, and a very common catch cry in the fight against HIV criminalisation is take the test risk arrest. Now, that's absolutely not something that we want to be going out to community and telling them. Um, you know, we are so fortunate in Australia, in particular in New South Wales and, and, of course, in Victoria as well, that we're having really high testing rates. And those high testing rates are an incredibly important aspect in the fight to end HIV. So the last thing we want to be doing is going out to community and having to warn them uh, that, you know, if they do test positive for HIV, they are exposing themselves to, um, you know, potential incarceration. Communication with the HIV community is obviously fairly essential in relation mm -hmm. to this um, amendment to the New South Wales Public Health Act and, and good and healthy communication, obviously. Um, because I guess to what extent I'm asking, I suppose, is that there potential for this to be a return to the grim reaper days when people with HIV were demonised in the 1980s and early early 90s through um, misinformation? Uh, well, look, I mean, that, 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 that old grim reaper uh, really hangs over us 
uh, in the community, and and it was a certainly effective um, piece of marketing in many ways because it's just taken hold in the Australian consciousness of what HIV and AIDS uh, is. Um, and just a bit of trivia, um, Ida Buttrose is actually one of the people who came up with that campaign, which not a lot of people know, and I always like to like to put that information out there. Um, look, we are constantly working as the um, as the people living with HIV community uh, to to take uh, and reduce the stigma around living with HIV. Um, we've come leaps and bounds. Uh, in the last five years alone, I've seen a massive leap in uh, the way Australia talks about HIV and, more importantly, the way HIV-positive people feel about themselves. Uh, they're feeling more empowered. They're feeling more accepted. They're feeling more part of society. Um, and access to treatment and high treatment rates uh, creating more undetectable people living with HIV um, is a big part of that, as is the rollout of PrEP, as is the rollout of um, anti-stigma campaigns. Um, but it takes constant vigilance. And what's really terrifying about these changes that have come in New South Wales is that they feel incredibly draconian and they are some of the most uh, regressive uh, changes to law reform we've seen in HIV in Australia for a very long time. Um, and it's extremely concerning that um, the minister uh, rushed these changes through um, New South Wales Parliament without proper... Uh, uh, consultation with the community organisation. That I was going to ask you about that, actually, Nick. It just seems yeah. interesting that this is happening during the marriage equality campaign. <laughs> Do you think um, that's not a coincidence? Do you think that the reason why it was rushed through was because, A, the community is so focused on marriage and, B, the community's response could perhaps be tempered because of the marriage campaign? Oh, look, I would love to imagine that uh, conservative forces in this country have any idea of uh, the queer experience and would be knowledgeable enough around that to think that they could rush this through and we wouldn't notice. Um, I unfortunately think uh, it's much more ignorant, and that's certainly in line with the way liberal people seem to be thinking about queer people at this point in history. Um, unfortunately, I do think it's just a, a combination of bad timing, and, um, and I've certainly felt that directly as an activist attempting to get um, you know, information out there about this the week that the postal survey went out, which is exactly when this vote got rushed through Parliament, uh, was not an easy task. Um, uh, we still had a, a fairly strong response and we had a lot of letters be sent in to the Minister and we had a good bit of media um, about this, which is a sign of just how serious uh, this issue is. Um, but no, I, unfortunately, unfortunately, as much as I do love a good conspiracy theory about conservative forces working their hardest to destroy us as a community, I think it was just a coincidence. What's the response been from people living with HIV organisations around the country in relation to the New South Wales Public Health Act Amendment? And has it been a united response? Uh, it hasn't been in, entirely united, although um, ACON, the AIDS Council of New South Wales, which is the peak New South Wales body, uh, was quick uh, to um, call out uh, New South Wales Health, despite the fact that they are you know, uh, uh, in bed, for want of a better word, with the department um, as their arm of HIV and, and queer health. Um, that was really encouraging. Um, other organisations have also um, uh, created communication and certainly been working very hard uh, behind the scenes, I know, to um, to lobby the minister to um, try and avoid these things happening. Uh, but I do know that they were all blindsided by this, uh, that there was there was no proper consultation and it all happened very quickly. Um, there has been a bit of talk around the country about this, but, of course, the, the problem being that this is a New South Wales 
particular issue um, and it's not quite appropriate for other jurisdictions to comment on that. Uh, the concern here is that so often with HIV in Australia is that um, as goes New South Wales, so goes the rest of the country. Um, so what we're worried about is that this could set a, um, a precedent uh, to roll out in other states and territories uh, where there are far less HIV-positive people and far less vocal HIV-positive people. So that's a serious concern. Have any other states indicated they may follow suit? Not yet, not yet, um, which is really great. We are hearing some murmurs, actually, that New South Wales might be looking at adopting um, the mandatory testing for spitting, which is something that was rolled out in the Northern Territory WA and SA in the last recent years, so that's a bit of a concern. Um, I do think that you know, Australia's HIV response uh, you know, gathers together and works together. Uh, we do great work, um, and that's a really important thing, is that uh, the HIV-positive community in this country stands on the shoulders of, of several decades of incredible activism and work, um, and we can't let you know, state politics uh, stop us from uh, fighting together. Nicholas there talking about amendments to the Public Health Act in New South Wales and its implications for HIV-positive people. City Limits, brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. This is 3CR Community Radio about 25 minutes past 7 on this Wednesday morning. Uh, and you have Nick, uh, Kate and Patty in the studio uh, this morning. And we were just listening to a In Your Face program, which you can listen to every Friday from 4 to 5, or listen on demand at 3cr.org.au. Fantastic. And uh, a song coming up. Patty, I believe this is your song. It is. It's a beautiful <laughs> tune. It's a beautiful tune. Richard will not get out of your mind, as this band's name is Richard in Your Mind. Mm. Shooting star. Don't worry 
write your name on a stone And leave it there in the road And if it gets picked up Then you're in luck But it'll probably be left alone Don't worry where you are You're a shooting star And if somebody follows you You know we'll last a little CR breakfast on your Wednesday morning. Um, hey guys, again. <laughs> We've got a good sprite about you with this. Uh, thank you. New rotation around the sun just begun. Well, it's and it's just sunny outside this morning. It just feels lovely outside. Um, it's it's good. I enjoy it's good. it. It is it's good. The days are getting Stamp longer. Of it's all of that. Yeah. <laughs> In the studio, we are now joined by uh, Sin's general manager. Sin being the Student Youth Network on ninety point seven FM. Uh, well, we're over here on the AM dial. Uh, and um, Sin uh, is the Student Youth Network. You've been around tw- is it about twenty years, Tess. Uh, just under. Just I under. Think we, we probably kind of like. Merged and existed as an organisation for about 17 years and then we've been on air for just under 15. And you are hearing the voice of SIN's general manager, Tess Lawley, oh, there. Tess, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you guys so much. Um, now, uh, we've got you on uh, this morning because SIN is going through some big changes, probably some of the biggest changes that it's gone through since it became yeah, SIN as, as a radio station. Yeah, We've um we've hit a point where we're sort of bursting at the seams of our current office, which is a um little car, uh, little terrace house on Cardigan Street in Carlton, um and so we're moving. Which um if uh, you guys have uh, sort of connected with a community radio station that then has to do a physical spaces or a premises move, 
They're huge. They're very Serious expensive. Um, it's very hard to uh, pick up a community um, and kind of move it, even though, you know, we're kind of just moving down the road. But um, even that is a, is a very big task. So we've secured this really schmick, nice new space. It's a really modern uh, co-working space. Uh, with more access to audio and video studios than we've ever had before, um, more opportunities for people under 26 to just make whatever sort of media they want to make, whether that's radio or podcasting or whether it's video um, or, you know, online-only content. Uh, and our last little step uh, is that we're uh, asking our general public, our friends and our family, our buddies in the community broadcasting sector um, to chip in for the last $15,000 that we need. So we're running a fundraiser at the moment. Where, where can people Sindu. go? Just just for the um, if people want to find out more about that quickly. Absolutely, our donation, our giving platform is um, givenow.com.au forward slash sin moves um, as one word. But if you check out our Facebook or our Twitter or our Insta um, or our website, it's all, all plastered. It. It's all this nice um, green and red uh, color scheme of the campaign that's really gotten into my head. I realized subconsciously <laughs> I um, painted my nails the same green and I like didn't realize until it's someone really pointed it out. You're living this like, move. You are living yeah, this move. Yeah, totally. So yeah. please donate so I can stop thinking about this every minute of every day. Do it for me. So how far along, I, I mean, for, for anyone that's been uh, in that in that Swanston Street area, you're seeing a lot of work that's going on mm. around RMIT. Uh, huge new facade um, near where the new train station is going to be as well. Brand new train station, new RMIT. How far how far along is it? What's what does the space look like? Does it look like a radio station yet? Not yet. At the <laughs> moment, it looks like a big room, yeah. <laughs> a really big room um, that uh, we're going to fit a bunch of studios and some desks and. Um, a training space into um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's along Swanson Street. Um, we are partnering with RMIT, who have been our partner and our landlord for sort of the whole existence of SIN. Um, and RMIT has redeveloped um, everything on Swanson Street between Latrobe and Franklin. So, yeah, re- leading up right into where there's now a whole heap of work going in for the Metro Rail. Mm. There's, in fact, a big hole in the ground <laughs> Yeah, yeah <laughs> with a, a whole big, heap of work going on there. a very noisy hole in the ground yeah. is what I have observed <laughs> when I walk past it. Um, and uh, we, we are um, slotting into that sort of building. Um, there's a floor that uh, was reserved for student spaces and uh, like learner-led activities which is also what's in in a kind of natural uh oh god synergy Um, (laughs) that's what we deliver a lot of for RMIT students being on RMIT's campus for so many years you get a lot of journalism students you get you know provcom media students and they come along and they um volunteer and give a lot to our organization but also get a hell of a lot out of it in terms Mm. of fine-tuning their skills and getting practical application that actually makes you a lot more employable. I was just going to ask, is it is it a university, I mean, you said you're partnered with RMIT, but it's not an RMIT initiative per se, so it's not students, but you'll get a lot come through. Well, actually, I was going to say a bit of the history of SIN. Where did, where did SIN come out of? Yeah. Can you, can you yeah. give us a bit of that? Because um, that will answer this question. Yeah, I think. absolutely. <laughs> and so, it's History Week, FYI. Oh, oh <laughs> hashtag wow. History Week. <laughs> In 2000, let me set the scene for you. 2000. Um, so uh, SIN came about when uh, the ACMA, which was then called the ABA, um, uh, started offering youth licences to metro broadcasters in the community sector. And um, there was a few different people kind of vying for these licences. And a lot of those 
people were techno stations that just mm. wanted to play bangers all day um, and call thing. that youth engagement. Um, <clears throat> which, you know, I couldn't have against bangers. I'm under 26. I'm into it. Um, and so uh, then within that kind of pool of applicants, there was one application that really stood out, which was came from a merger of two current community radio stations that were that were sort of test broadcasting. One uh, was SRA, which was the Student Radio Association on RMIT's campus, and then the other one was uh, 3TD, which was a, a high school station that was being run out of Thornbury Darabin College, which is now Thornbury High. Um, and they merged together and the uh, kind of brief, that the pitch that they gave to the ACMA was it's actually going to be a participatory um, model and it's actually going to be about getting young people on air to make content, mm. not just making something um, for young people or for the young at heart, uh, which is one of my <laughs> least favourite sayings <laughs> in the world. Um, and so um, SIN has maintained that for those 15 years and so we run we now run two full-time broadcasts so 90.7 fm um is our fm channel and our digital channel is actually entirely separate uh and it's wow. a whole different stream with a whole different group of young people and a whole other so um, it's, it's not pre-recorded <laughs> on some computer somewhere it's mm. actually a, another live station that you're running yeah That's it, huge. um we do a fair bit of live stuff we also um on sin nation in the in the on the digital spectrum it's actually a fantastic station um to listen to because we actually do do a lot of pre-recording with young people outside of melbourne mm. so in regional areas particularly mm. um at the moment we have a whole heap of partnerships um with uh indigenous communities in the kimberley and there are lots of young people making content about what it's like to live in the kimberley and then sending it to us and we're airing it in melbourne awesome so it's a really sort of tremendous um, platform in terms of hearing diverse voices within young people, you know, sort of further marginalised voices, I guess. Um, and so we do three hours of live TV on Channel 31 as well, and we do a bunch of online content um, on our website, video, podcast, um, text, sort of anything you can name. And everything is made by volunteers under the age of 26. Mm. Yeah, well, with that, uh, <laughs> under the age of 26, great initiative. Um, <laughs> it's a youth network. What happens, like, I'm sure that you've had this question before, what happens if you get the job or you start working there at 25 and then you turn 26? Like, are these people Someone booted out? Someone turns 26 just, in and a you month. Just said you were almost, I mean, are you, are you out, general manager gone? No, luckily as a staff member I get to stay. But when you volunteer, right. uh, when you turn 26, we call it your sin death because it's like you died because you're not allowed to volunteer anymore. It's it's the nature of uh, a lot of youth organisations do work like that, to be fair. You're not the only yeah. one. There's a, a number of them. So um, uh, many years ago, I, I uh, did a few programs at SIN and helped out with some OBs and some teching and stuff. And there has been one thing, and it's what you were talking about there, but one thing that really stuck into in my mind and was under um, Bryce Ives, general manager, mm -hmm. who's uh, now Legend. into his arts uh, in Ballarat, I believe. Um and one of the things that really stuck in my mind then was you're not making radio, and this, I still keep keep this in my mind today, you're not making radio, you're making content, and it's broadcasting Absolutely. across different media streams, and SIN really um, are really good at focusing on that. And that's what we need in the future of uh, future, media, future media producers. We need people that aren't just going to make one form of media. They're, make, they're content makers. Mm. And um, I imagine you guys are still uh, pushing that line because that's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's I mean, what's going on beautifully we we don't even have to push it so much um people sin, just get it now <laughs> yeah so sin um sort of about uh we're just sort of on the cusp now that um anyone who comes into sin now to volunteer 
grew up with the domesticated internet. Of course, yeah, yeah. Like has never known a world where um, you mm. didn't just have the internet at your fingertips um, in your home and that was totally normal. So there's kind of a really significant shift in digital media there. Um, and while a lot of bigger traditional um, media outlets, are, you know, for example, the ABC, really want to impress that idea of... Um, you know, it's it's a story and then pick which platform works for the story. You're making content, so where does it fit? Think about it in that way as opposed to going, we're making a radio show, what do we want to put on it? Yep. Um, while there's a kind of shift towards that, our volunteers are doing it naturally. Um, we actually, we recently had to change all of our training because we were offering radio training or audio training and video and TV training separately. Um, and volunteers were kind of like, why do I have to do this? Can't we just all do it together? Mm. And we were like, oh, actually, yeah, we totally can. Let's do that instead. So now when you do training at scene, you do audio, you do video, you do radio, you do TV, you do online media and you do social media yeah, wow. and some media law as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. you got to keep on top of um, that as well. And so that it's actually a really sort of natural progression into that idea of content because that's what young people consume, so that's what young people want to make. This is, yeah, I mean, that. Uh, um, I, I feel like I, I was probably, I'm probably at that age where... Uh, I'm just at that crossover point and a lot of us are just at that crossover point um, where we didn't quite grow up with immersive internet. I didn't have social media until like year 12 and even mm-hmm. then it wasn't a big thing. So we didn't have all that throughout our high school and we sort of did some video editing but it was like video cameras with a videotape that you had to get a really fancy computer and program to do. Now everyone can do it on their phones just yeah, about. Totally. Um, so of course, yeah, the under tw- under 26 uh, people would be just naturally They're making crazy. media like that. Yeah, <laughs> They're really great and they really need a new home. So. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and that uh, website again for those that might like to help out with the future yeah, of Sin. Yeah, absolutely. Chuck us a few dollars. Um, Sin uh, doesn't do a radiothon. We don't fundraise regularly. We do it every now and then. So if you have listened um, to 90.7 and thought this is really cool or listened um, to sort of our conversation today and thought, yeah, they're doing good stuff, um, help us do more of it for a long time. Um, our giving platform is givenow.com.au slash sinmoves. Excellent, Tess. Thank you very much for coming oh, in. Thank you so uh, much for having me and sharing your SIN alumni <laughs> stories. I love it. Uh, have you been speaking with uh, many other SIN alumni? Uh, it's It's been fantastic. Like, I mean, you guys would know from doing a radio thon or a radio festival that um, it is just the best vibes in a community broadcaster is when you're talking about how great the thing is um, and when you're fundraising because people kind of turn around and they go like, oh, yeah, hang on, this is actually a fantastic thing. I've realised it now. I've remembered. Um, And so we're getting a lot of that and it's just been absolutely lovely. So please do donate to SIN if you can and um, do check them out. SINSYN.org.au is the website as well and you can find some of the some of the content made by our young up-and-comers and there are alumni across um, Australia's uh, media as well. I know I regularly listen to the ABC when I'm not listening to um, 3CR or another community radio station um, and I, uh, there's a couple of names that I remember from back when I was um, volunteering with SIN. So it's a yeah, fantastic initiative and thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Uh, it is 3CR Wednesday breakfast, about 20 minutes away from 8 this morning uh, and heading for a top of 30 degrees. It is going to be lovely. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. 
services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Good morning, 3CR, Wednesday 18th, October. Um, So a few weeks ago we heard um, in the studio from Daryl Taylor about his fight to get a radical sustainable home permitted in King Lake um, following the Black Saturday fires in 2009. Um, Daryl submitted plans for an earthship, which is a passive solar home built into the earth. It's surrounded by ram tyre wall and recycled materials such as bottles. Um, This unique design, it comes from Taos, New Mexico, um, where they are completely off-grid, harnessing their own food, water, electricity and reusing their waste. It's a really amazing initiative. And this past weekend, I speak with founder and architect Mike Reynolds, um, and he tells me more about the concept. Why did I start this kind of building? I think um, I I didn't have a plan. I didn't even know I was starting something. I was just uh, a young architectural graduate in New Mexico trying to uh, make a life for myself and I was just looking around at the world and doing things that seemed logical to me for me. Um, what, what caused it to happen is friends of mine and, and local people started seeing what I was doing and going can you do this for me or can you help me do it for myself and I'm saying damn you know um, people seem to be uh, uh, liking this direction and then as I observed more and more I saw that this direction was actually needed to be taken as the world kept sort of spiraling down into pollution and garbage and and uh, lack of uh, you know dwindling fossil fuels and things like that I started seeing that this little bitty logical steps that I took for myself were actually applicable to uh, a lot of people. And the world kept getting worse and I kept getting better at it. And now we're around the world uh, trying to apply this for everybody. Can you, can you break down the principles of an earthship? What makes an earthship um, an earthship? Well, an earthship, um, really the definition is that it, uh, it addresses as, as a building, as a vessel, I call it, it addresses uh, the six most important uh, needs of humanity. And they are obviously comfortable shelter that doesn't require fossil fuel. And of course, everybody needs water. Uh, everybody needs electricity. Um, everybody needs a way of dealing with human waste that we call sewage. Uh, Humans simply produce garbage and it must be dealt with, and humans need food. There is not a city or a country uh, or a tribe that doesn't have to address these issues. So we are making the living vessel uh, that, that people uh, use on this planet address all of them 
in a decentralized, uh, immediate way. I like to think of it as a vessel designed to uh, provide everything that a, a human needs as they go on their journey on this planet. Uh, it makes it so you don't need the uh, municipalities and the utilities and the infrastructure. Uh, it provides that for you and, and the way it provides it is by encountering uh, the natural phenomena of the planet. So it's, it's a vessel that encounters the natural phenomena of the planet to provide sustenance for its human inhabitants. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's definitely a necessity for everyone and, and how we live. I guess um, when you started the design, what's been the biggest breakthrough that you've noticed in your design changes? You've been working at it for 40 odd years. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Well, I think it's it's not a major breakthrough anywhere as much as it is a, a, a growing understanding of eighth grade biology and physics and how they can uh, guide us into uh, and empower us into uh, a future that puts every, every human in direct contact with their sustenance rather than in remote contact with it uh, via uh, infrastructure and politics and corporations. Uh, I think that's the key overall issue is empowering people to be directly uh, their own master. It, it's more of a constant crescendo than a, a blasting through. Yeah. This Earthship in King Lake, uh, Daryl Taylor's, it's got some standout features that are quite different from a traditional Earthship and some of those are the internal walls, the cob, light earth, mud brick I guess to some, to some degree. Um, have you used these sorts of internal structures and have you considered? Uh, well, anything that is massive uh, is a valid, uh, you know, interior wall. You, you want to surround yourself with mass because mass holds temperature. And so the thicker and the more dense the mass, the better. And so if, if the uh, cob and adobe uh, is what they have around and uh, they have the, uh, the ability to use it, then, then it's good. I, I don't really uh, ridicule any attempt. Uh, I choose the ones I choose for many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons I choose automobile tires rammed with earth is because they're indigenous to the entire planet. I've never been anywhere that doesn't have dirt and tires. Mm -hmm. So to, in order for us to just continue using the same thing over and over again and making it better almost every time, uh, I have ones that I use. But uh, if, if someone else has a, a material that meets some of the criteria, uh, it's, it's certainly a valid thing. When did the idea originate? Well, it's, it's like uh, the, the whole idea is covering so many uh, realms, you know, from, from water, power, sewage, structure, recycling, food. Uh, it wasn't an idea that happened like that. It was a direction that I was leaning in over a few decades. And as a result of that, uh, I turn around maybe 10 years ago and say, I'm addressing these six points. Uh, it happened, it took 30 or 40 years for me to realize that's what I was doing and it, and, it, and it looked like that's the exact six points that need to be being addressed now 
And so I think it was more me recognizing that the idea had emerged rather than a light bulb coming on and the idea happening. Yeah, cool, that's awesome. I wanted to sort of just know what, I guess, after 40 years, what keeps you going? You're doing another tour around Australia, you're still going around the world um, advocating for this concept. Um, you keep them going to the end? What's up? Uh... Uh, yeah, I just don't, I don't see any reason to stop. Uh, I mean, I'm inspired about it. I have, uh, uh, I see where the world could go if everyone on the planet man, woman, and child had, a, had what I consider to be their birthright, which is sustenance, you know, without money be being between them. See, there's no money between me and the sun. It's going to warm me for free. And I, I want that to have everybody recognize those things and, and have uh, the comfort or the security or the... Um, peace of mind to know that they have sustenance and I think I mean when I imagine you know seven billion people at peace with the world uh, and and secure then I could see humanity going to a completely different level and it's probably a, a, an adventure or a curiosity that keeps me going toward that awesome can you kind of explain to us um, the global relief model that you started? I love this concept. Um, yeah, you're going around the world and, and you're helping aid um, areas that have recently been through, you know, right now with climate change as well and what we're seeing more and more of that. Can you talk us through the global relief model? Well, the, the, glo the global relief thing we're doing is is taking these these principles, these six points that we have learned to address and trying to address them uh, in a crisis situation because it, it, what I've really observed from doing this uh, is that uh, after an earthquake or after a hurricane, people still need these same things, only they need them more desperately and it's still the same things. It's still shelter, it's still water, it's still sanitation. And we, I call these uh, crisis situations a hole in dogma because in those cases, there is no rules, regulatory system, or anything like that. They just want shelter as quick as they can get it. They want water any way they can get it. They want sanitation any way they can get it. And we get to go and immediately do it. Like Daryl has spent, what, eight years getting his building half finished. Uh, we can go and in four days put up a room in Haiti that will last through the next earthquake or put up a room in Puerto Rico that'll last through the next hurricane. Um, it's an immediate, it's an instant gratification, uh, if you will. So it's like um, the, the uh, devastating things that happen on this planet actually give us an opportunity to learn as well as apply what we have learned to help people. Is, is this your, is this maybe your last tour around Australia or um, will we see you out here again? Um, I, I don't really see uh, it as being the last time here. So I think uh, we'll get some things started maybe and be back. Uh, it's, the planet for me is getting smaller and smaller because I'm all over it all the time. So uh, I'll be back. Great, and so for the next 10 days, this is the beginning of your tour and you go from Melbourne, 
Adelaide, Perth, Alice. I don't know which way it goes, yeah. but then and then you're up to Nimbin. Nimbin. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting to me at 3CR this morning. All right. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday 18th and that was myself chatting to Mike Reynolds, founder and architect of um, Earthship Design, touring around Australia as you just heard. Um, he's now left Melbourne on to first Nimbin, then Adelaide and Perth. But yeah, what a guy. Um, mm-hmm. 82, really sharp and um, can still, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was quite impressed and um, can still pick up a sledgehammer and pound a tyre. He wasn't super keen on doing it up at King Lake. <laughs> he was more into his margarita at that point. <laughs> but, but he can. Yes, well, I, and I suppose he's, he's probably been doing it for uh, long enough that he's taught other people to do that. Exactly. The, it's uh, been passed on. Work. That's his legacy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're heading for a top of 30 degrees today and sunny, 24 possible storms tomorrow and 17 and partly cloudy on Friday. Um, now, uh, well, coming up soon, we are going to be uh, hearing from... Common Grounds. Common Grounds, yes. Which would be really good. We get some poetry coming here on the Wednesday to... Shed some light on this sunshiny day. We'll see what comes from there. I know the poems were worked on um, throughout the series, and so it'll be good to get an insight into what was happening there. But um, uh, up soon we are going. We, we've been. We keep up to date with the news, don't we? Sort of. <laughs> yeah, we're up to date. We could go to. Well, we could do news now. Could oh we? no, no, we'll do that in like five minutes. We have got something else first. We're, I'm just saying. Always you know. trolling the news. <laughs> you were just saying you're a news junkie. You uh, keep yeah, well yeah. and truly. Up to date with the news. It's a look. The twenty four. I, I realised like I've haven't. I wasn't in, uh, that interested in news before. It was like this twenty four hour maddening news cycle, and I'm I'm pretty sure it is like a narcotic at this point. At this point, when you can wake up in the middle of the night, scroll through your your bloody feeds and find something that has no relevance whatsoever. You're probably not really that interested in it. Just goes through you, um, like you know, it's bad food or something. Um, but you think, oh, I'm being useful here. I'm keeping up to date with the news. You're not being useful. Should be asleep. Uh, right now, <laughs> right now though, uh, this is uh, from Asia Calling, another program here on 3CR. 3cr.org.au and follow the links to the Asia Calling uh, website if you want to uh, have a listen to the full show or find the podcast. Uh, this was a recent um, uh, discussion they did, uh, Australian Justice Walk, that we're hearing from right now on 3CR. Clinton Pryor has walked almost 6,000 kilometers from one side of Australia to the other through desert and harsh terrain. Accompanied by his uncle and supporters, the 27-year-old Aboriginal man from Western Australia arrived in the country's capital, Canberra, after a year of solid walking. His aim? To raise awareness about issues in Aboriginal communities. We're living in a first world country, but yeah, people living in third world conditions. Initially, Clinton's walk for justice was a response to the Western Australian government's plan to defund services to around 150 remote Aboriginal communities. Addressing a crowd of supporters in Sydney last month, Clinton made it clear that remote Indigenous communities are hugely disadvantaged. A lot of our people out there committing suicidal Two black followers commit suicide every week. And then we started seeing that there was no services out there for counselling and that for our people to talk to. Indigenous people living in remote areas face particularly high rates of unemployment, mental health issues, and struggle to make ends meet. According to a 2015 federal government report on Indigenous health and welfare, the suicide rate for Indigenous youth 
is five times that of non-indigenous youth. The unemployment rate of indigenous people is four times higher than non-indigenous people. And indigenous Australians are six times more likely to live in public housing. Far from economic centers, opportunities for development are scarce. A lot of the people out there don't even have fresh water. None of them don't even have water. And people are starving out there too. Food prices were getting higher and higher the more further we went out. Since British colonizers arrived, Aboriginal Australians have had their land taken and their children stolen. The introduction of disease and alcohol rotted communities. In the early 20th century, thousands of indigenous Australians were taken off their land, rounded up and put in compounds run by Christian missionaries, where their own language and culture was suppressed. While those policies have officially ended, systemic disadvantage continues. There is a growing feeling of dissatisfaction among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who feel the government systematically neglects them. We, we lived on promises and lies all our life. We know what they did. I know what they did. Uh, and I'm not really happy with them. That is Bronwyn Nolland, an Aboriginal woman from Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. When an Indigenous teenager was fatally hit by a car in 2016, the driver of the vehicle was charged with reckless driving and found not guilty of manslaughter. Bronwyn Newland feels that justice hadn't been served. She explains that incidences like these further the distrust towards the government. That incident in Kalgoorlie, yes, and a lot of, lot of other issues in Kalgoorlie that cannot be solved in a hurry, um, they're not going to solve a problem. We must solve our own problem. Let us solve our own problem. I am the last of the people. Herbert Brofo is an Aboriginal man from Western Australia and Clinton Pryor's uncle. He says the walk for justice has made Aboriginal communities more visible. And now he wants Aboriginal voices to be listened to. Maybe it'll, it'll make a big impact for the government to stand up and listen to our Aboriginal issues. Clinton Pryor's walk for justice comes at a time of change in Aboriginal affairs. Pryor insists that a treaty between the Australian government and Indigenous people must be at the top of the political agenda. We're more supportive of a treaty so we can self-govern and take care of our people of ourselves. In September, Clinton Pryor met with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and opposition leader Bill Shorten. The goal, he says, was to raise issues he encountered in Aboriginal communities and to push for treaty negotiations. But after walking almost 6,000 kilometers in 12 months, he still felt the voices of indigenous people fell on deaf ears. Us must be taught at schools and in high schools and at unis so that we do not make the same mistakes of what happened in the past. We learn from it so we can build a better future for ourselves and also um, educate non-indigenous people. Clinton says, he hasn't reached the end of the road yet. He's promised to continue fighting for Aboriginal voices to be heard. For Asia Calling, I'm Jake Atienza, Sydney, Australia.
You're listening to 3CR. That was Jay Katienza, as he said, from Asia Calling, talking about Clinton Pryor's Walk for Justice. Um, in other news, uh, Jessica Hoyt is a forestry protester and Bob Brown, they began arguing against Tasmania's anti-forestry laws and how they unconstitutionally restrict freedom of speech um, following an arrest in January 2016 when they peacefully were observing the destruction of La Poinia Forest in northern Tasmania. Um, Bob challenged the new laws back then um, and the interesting thing is they were laws that were passed in 2014 and under this new act any activity that promotes awareness or support of an opinion in respect of a political, environmental, social, cultural, economic issue taking place on business premises can be charged. What? So it's and it, it's become like even the UN has written in and sort of said this has become like one of the most um, you know business uh, pro business anti community anti community anti anything else. That's anti- ridiculous. So they were charged ten thousand and people can be charged up to ten thousand um, dollars. And so, you know, this is obviously, I think it must have been a two year, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure on that, how long he's been fighting for this. And yeah, so basically lots of um, protests can be, you know, um, can have penalties down in Taz because of this. Uh, a lot of the other states around Australia actually jumped on board. They were mm. kind of on board with Tassie Gov. Western Australia pulled out um, when Labor won the state's mm. March election or something. And, um, yeah, so today they proceed, Bob and um, Jessica, they proceed with a high court challenge to these anti-protest laws and the ruling to these laws will be handed down today. So that's that's kind of today's news. We don't know keep, anything yet. But keep maybe our keep, eye on keep our eye on it because it's something that will affect... Well, it'll affect the country and, and you know, certainly affect Australia and it's, it, what happens. It shows if- a, a direction that they're, they're sort of trying to go in because I think we see this kind of stuff with union busting um, stuff where, you know, it's, it's really trying to put the uh, the business mm. as as the, the primary Top thing the that agenda. needs, yeah, yeah. that mm. needs um, protecting and, and sometimes at the expense of the community. I think we saw this sort of thing with the East-West Link with um, trying to um, bust mm. the protests around that based yeah. on, you know, oh, but we've got business to do. So, you know, you, you can protest, but don't interrupt us. Exactly. Well, what, so it becomes very pro-business and if uh, activists are coming in or protesters are coming in and they're stopping business practices, mm. then there's grounds to then, um, you know, charge them. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Who, yeah, who are we protecting? Undemocratic. People or corporations? <laughs> exactly. We're protecting jobs here, Nick. Yeah. Oh, oh, protecting jobs. <laughs> Thank you, Patty. Um, Patty. There's other things going on. There in is Victoria. other things. In Victoria, um, at the moment, there's some legislation being put to the parliament. Um, and it sees at odds Premier Daniel Andrews and Deputy Premier James Marolino um, as Premier Andrews is very for the assisted dying legislation that's being trying to push mm. through the parliament. Uh, it's obviously a very contentious issue with a lot of the parliamentarians having personal connection or at least um, personal experience with this. And Andrews' argument is that it's already happening here in Victoria and within our hospital institutions and that passing this legislation would allow it to be um, uh, go under the guise of being recognised and being able to control it and understand it. And, yeah, so... And voluntary assisted dying here being euthanasia, more commonly known as um, euthanasia, but um, because of, it seems, um, uh, a certain conservative religious influence in Australian politics, we have to sort of water it down. And this is, from what I understand, mm-hmm. it is the most watered-down version yeah. of um, this kind of war. It's very conservative legislation being put forward. And the in other, the world. Yeah. And the other argument that's coming in 
coming from the voice of the Deputy Premier, so that's conservative on both points, the against argument and also still trying to stay in line with its party, um, is that he was saying that the, the medication isn't quite there yet um, and also just the premise around who can die, how they can die and all of that. But if you want to get learn more, there has the Guardian has posted a little short snap of the legislation that they're putting through, who can mm-hmm. apply, um, how will it work, and all those sort of nitty-gritties that you can get your head around. You can also um, watch Parliament live uh, at the Parliament website, Victoria... Oh, sorry, parliament.vic.gov.au, um, and I believe they'll be discussing that in Parliament today. Could get heated if you want just the short bits. You can check your, even ex- your news feed, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you can watch it firsthand as well and get really involved. It's funny, they even extended the minutes of allowing um, people to speak in Parliament from 10 mm. to 15 for this one. It's a very, um, you know, uh, an issue that hits home for a lot, hard for a lot of people because it is about our, our death and when and why and how that happens. It's funny how all rights get taken away from people when they're dying. You know, they don't have the choice to, to make these decisions for themselves. I think it's I think it's great that it's being taken into the court and I think it's great to be discussed. And, yeah, I think we need to sort of see this sort of legislation come in, absolutely. At the other, opinion. other end of life, um, there uh, is some controversy around how people manage their fertility with um, certain, more specifically, religious groups are opposing uh, abortion. Mm. And for a long time, um, a group called Helpers of God's Precious Infants, or HOGPI, uh, a Catholic um, event, uh, sort of a Catholic uh, far-right organisation, I suppose, that sort of came out of the US where this kind of stuff um, is, is constantly coming up. There have been um, basically terrorist attacks on abortion clinics or fertility clinics in um, in the US. Not, not quite that same level of thing here in Australia, though there was an incident about 15 years ago um, where a security guard was shot by an mm. anti-abortion protester um, and uh, I believe he might have had a bomb on him that he wasn't able to... I can't remember what, what the, the full thing was. Uh, but anyway, so there's, it's been this ongoing issue, is what I'm trying to say, around um, the fertility clinic in Melbourne, the East Melbourne Fertility Clinic. Um, it's not just abortions that they perform there. They do a whole range of um, work around fertility. That's why it's called a fertility clinic. That does include abortions, but also help for people that might be looking to go into IVF or um, all, all sorts of other things. Uh In November of 2015, a law was passed that was um, put forward by um, Fiona Patton of the Reason Party, formerly Australian Sex Party, uh, to create an exclusion zone uh, outside the fertility clinic because um, these these rather... aggressive at times protesters would spend almost every single day outside of that clinic and I used to go down five five or six years ago and, and go to some of these um, uh, sort of defences it was a really strange situation where we had a group that was standing outside the clinic to stop the um, aggressive protesters uh, from coming onto that side of the path so that we could allow people to get in. Either way, it's it's still not... It wasn't a good situation for them because you've got these two mm, opposing yeah. groups yelling at each other. They would bring down, like, Virgin Mary on their backs oh, on this giant, like, you know, uh, crucifix. It was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, they'd march down. Yeah, it was... And the whole point is intimidation. They weren't... Mm. You know, they claim that it's about, oh, we want women to know their options. But we actually have a very effective um, healthcare system here in Victoria. Women do know their options. They're not stupid. (laughs) 
Um, and they are given these options by professionals. We don't need it from, um, well, Kathy Club. And uh, this is the story that I'm getting to now. Kathy Club um, is a long-time anti-abortion protester. Uh, and uh, she, she's a mother to 13 children, obviously uh, very anti-abortion and probably anti uh, any kind of contraception as well. Sorry, Kathy, but <laughs> I'm not judging you on that. She, uh, she um, flaunted these laws that created this exclusion zone to stop people from going and, and engaging in this intimidatory um, type of, uh, of, of protest, so-called protest. Um, and she she went and flaunted that law and tried to give out pamphlets, mm. um, which are quite aggressive to people outside the fertility clinic. Uh, she was taken to court over it, and she was supported uh, by the Australian Christian Lobby, um, who apparently have put together quite a big fund uh, to start litigation around these sorts of issues. So the Australian Christian Lobby, again, not representative of Christians in Australia at mm. all. Um, they are a, a small hard right organisation, I think it's it's fair to say, they've been um, leading the Vote No campaign on same-sex marriage and they're throwing money behind uh, things like this to try and mm. uh, stop women from having rights over their their own bodies. Um, so Cathy uh, was was upheld by them. Uh, it was was supported by them. Uh, it was heard in court, and it, it, they found her guilty, which is fantastic. It means the laws work. She was fined five thousand um, dollars. Now they're saying they want to take it to the high court um, because they, you know, they're claiming again freedom of speech. Oh, what about our freedom of speech? Um, what they forget is that uh, there is also a freedom of women not to be harassed when they're trying to seek uh, a medical uh, service. Um, and your freedom of speech doesn't get to... You don't get to walk into people's like lounge rooms and just start yelling at them. Freedom of speech doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want because you're a righteous person. It means that you get to have that open dialogue, but, you know, there's limitations. It's a hard one because then you're coming up against also legislation that's trying to be passed in um, Tasmania that we just touched on. Mm. It's, it's a hard space to negotiate that. You're hitting so many good points there, Nick, and it's a brutal protest that they put forward where you're hitting really vulnerable people with some strange like personal things coming at people walking into a clinic that they may or may not necessarily want to be doing but it might be the right choice for them but they should still have that choice and it's yeah maybe there is something to say of this um this hashtag that's really started going around at the moment hashtag me too which is uh oh yeah i was just saying um we're talking just before about the my newsfeed and i'm sure many people's the hashtag me too has begun to flood social media um internationally with women's accounts of harassment and assault um it comes in the wake of the claims against the movie producer Harvey Weinstein um, by actresses including Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie accusing him of harassment. Um, at this stage it's just accusations and we'll see what will how, how that'll go on but American actress Alyssa Milano um, called on Twitter users on Sunday to post Me Too to share their experiences of being harassed to shine the light on the magnitude of the problem and I find it quite interesting because it's kind of done that so the fact that this has gone all around the world and it's in Australia and this is a well at this stage non-funded this is just social media and it, and it is creating awareness and it is creating conversation and people are sharing their accounts and I don't know like you said if people that are perpetrators look at that and care if that makes any difference but it brings a conversation which i think is in one way important city limits brought to us by the people's committee for melbourne every wednesday at 9am city limits is melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment to transport and planning and housing issues to privatizations and our utility services to building and or maintaining a sense of community 
855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City limits. It's 3CR Breakfast on your Wednesday morning. And if you're interested in more about the voluntary assisted dying laws or euthanasia laws, the Victoria Law Foundation is presenting a community forum uh, to explore what the proposed legislation could mean through a panel discussion of experts covering legal and health perspectives. Uh, The Law and You Forum, Perspectives on Voluntary Assisted Dying, will also discuss how the recommendations made in the final report would affect people receiving and working in palliative care. Uh, That's happening Thursday, the 20th. 6th of October, 6pm 6 6 until 7.30pm at Deacon Edge uh, at Federation Square. And here we are. Yeah. Get down to that if you can. <laughs> and we are joined in the studio by some common ground perspectives and participants who just took part in the last two months putting together workshop series and participating. We have in the studio Noor Abuzeld. Abuzed. Abuzed, thank <laughs> you. Shima Hamalia. Um, sorry, Shima, I've been getting that wrong. And for for Nishimira Mana. I'm so sorry, really showing my tongue there. Um, but thank you all for coming in. Um, we were just chatting off air what a distance it was for you to come in and share the perspective of the workshop that you put on. I was hoping well, you were facilitating it, I understand, or a little bit. Could you tell us a little bit about Common Ground's workshop series and how it comes together? I understand it's the fifth one thus far. Yeah, sure. So um, the Common Ground... Uh, also, good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm Nord. Um, so I was co-facilitating the Brimbank series of workshops with another amazing poet named Manal Yunus. Um, the Common Ground workshop series, the, the project started, uh, must have been a couple of years ago now, and initially it was... Um, it was an initiative between uh, Muslim and Sikh communities to get them together, partly because obviously a uh, heightened sense of racism in this country. And also there tends to be tension between those two groups as well. So uh, it was a good way to bring youth from those communities together to find a you know common ground and express each other via poetry. Um, the project sort of expanded now with you know Multicultural Arts Victoria to sort of open it up to all communities, people from different walks of life, again, with the same idea of getting young people together, finding a, a way to express themselves um, through mainly poetry, and then sort of realising that uh, uh, everyone really has an important story to tell, and sometimes uh, it's through the differences that we can actually um, learn to get along, I suppose. Mm. And how does workshop take place? So there was about six of them running over these two-month course. Like, what... What does a workshop look like and how did, how did it play out? Um, so it, it depends on um, the di- different facilitators. So like I said, we were doing, uh, Manal and I were um, in Brimbank. Um, and basically we ran a, a few workshops sort of starting off, you know, uh, going over some persuasive writing techniques, you know, introducing people to the concept of using metaphors and rhymes, giving some examples. Um, Manal is a theatre trained, so she was quite big on doing a lot of... Um, theatre exercises, a bit of warm-ups, all that stuff just to get the, sort of the nerves out. And then each, we would dedicate each workshop to a certain theme, uh, have a conversation about that and then get our participants sort of writing and performing things regards to that theme. So we looked into things, you know, regarding identity. So talking about home, places we'd rather be, uh, belonging, family, spirituality, were all some themes we sort of covered throughout mm. the six weeks. 
And how did you find that, um, Shima and Fofo? Did you have much experience in doing spoken word or poetry um, prior to entering these Common Ground workshops? Um, I'm a secondary school teacher, so I've got experience um, in writing because I teach my students different writing skills and different writing techniques. But coming to the workshop, I've learned a lot. Um, more because then it, it's it's firsthand and you work with the team and you like you you learn different techniques other than teaching your students because those skills when you put yourself um, into writing them um, you know and uh, experiment with them they they actually um, you know they come out differently because um, you get you gain a different experience a totally different experience so I've learned more coming to this workshop because um, I didn't have experience with the theatre. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that we've practised doing that, um, you know, throughout our rehearsals, and that helped me a lot as well. So, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. You'll be able to bring that to the classroom and imagine yeah. that new perspective and understanding when <laughs> yeah. you ask someone to get up or say something. It can be quite daunting, hey? That's right, yeah. Yeah. How about for you, for, for Um, I'm always in my Europa, so... I do a lot of writing, and I also do some poetry at times, but coming to the workshop actually uh, opened my mind as like how different it is. I mean, rap came from poetry, but it's like certain skills that it's needed, and it's so different from like writing raps, and like the rhyming skills uh, is different. Um, the metaphors, I find you, you get more deeper into it when you're writing poetry. So that was one thing that I picked up uh, and I thought it was really helpful as well. Mm. Did you find the stage a good presence to be when you were on stage or performing? Have you found it a little bit easier or is it hard in a different sort of medium? It's personally, it's for me, it's a different ball game. Yeah. Um, I was more nervous actually. <laughs> performing in front of two, like, <laughs> how many people, like, seven people then performing on the stage is, yeah, it's a different ballgame. <laughs> and did you all work off one another? So bringing rap and bringing teaching into those workshops, did the workshops work where everyone sort of helped each other and sort of bounced off one another in crafting the story and poems? Everyone's sort of individual skills and experience certainly um, brought different sort of it brought the diversity certainly to the workshops yes yeah, yeah i imagine and how did you get involved in it? like what drew both of you into the common ground i uh, learned about the workshop through manal yunus um yeah i was uh, i went to one of the um her poetry performances and i really enjoyed the session and um i wanted to pursue that myself because i've been writing poetry in the past but i've stopped for six years because i got really busy with life and you know carried away with life so um i wanted to actually get back to doing that so once i heard about it i was really interested in joining the workshop because it's something that I wanted to explore. I um, I wanted to improve my writing skills because despite the fact that I'm a teacher, but then writing poetry and knowing what people want and what you need to present and the ideas, the concepts, um, how to put it in writing and make it like an excellent piece of writing, we had to kind of learn that. So that's what we um, learned from the workshop through Nora and Manal and yeah, putting all the techniques in, um, you know, in a in one poem it wasn't actually an easy process so that's something that we've learned through this workshop beautiful i was hoping there's any chance there might be some poetry <laughs> floating around in the studio that one of you or both of you would be happy to read or three 
Does anyone want to put their hand up? I know I spoke to you, Fofo, before, and you were going to prep a little bit in the card. Did it happen? Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, I'm not sharing something I just wore this morning, but, <laughs> you know, I'm still trying to get into, like, this writing poetry stuff away from them MCs, but are we allowed to do the tag? Because <laughs> I'm just about to tag. <laughs> are we allowed to do tagging? Because, like... I can just tag. You can tag. Do it. <laughs> do what you need to do, man. But I don't mind sharing this so either way. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Um. Do we, do we need a countdown or something? What can we do to help? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> so, I just cut it down lines. I'm still writing on it because I just started working on it. Um. Dead pillows feels cold in summer when when you're dead asleep. So I prefer her punching line straight at me when she speaks. She said, I prefer broken bones than another heartbreak. As she often makes herself, as she often smokes herself to sleep out of the daylight, she is like a full moon that attracts the earth buffets in clouds. Smile shines as a dandelion with silence and speaks out loud. She said to me, love is pain and the loyalty is rare. I saw the pain in her eyes and she, as she shared, only to realize that she breathed pain in every air. Never was taught how to love, but how to say her farewell well. I found, my, I found myself dry in the middle of the ocean as she questions my loyalty. It felt like prison, as I present myself with her smile got caught with the emotions and now trying to feed my ego, I cheated my feelings with devotion. Devoting myself on providing pointless points of a crying notion, see, I, I was raised by a cold in the corner to never break the code, only to realize the rules are made to, to be broken, only to realize the rules are made to be broken. Now we sit in silence as an awkward moment to replace happy moments. I, I like you, I like you, yes, I like you, no, turning to, I don't even think about it. My dandelion now is defined as my last phone call. So what do you do when your blood no longer travels through your veins? That's where I am. No, not bad, man. Good work. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> you see, I, I felt like I was like about to pass out. <laughs> I feel like it was a wrap. I'm like, yeah, I'll be happy. Like, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That was beautiful. I was hoping we... I'd all squeeze in something from you, Shima. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is, is this on on the spot on the spot from Patty? <laughs> She's putting the headlights on. Um, Going through the uh, notebooks. Yeah. <laughs> and just so you know, listeners, that um, this these workshops that have run across Victoria, they are culminating in a little bit of a performance happening through Multicultural Arts Victoria in Mapping the M- Mapping Melbourne Festival, happening in December, is that right? Uh, something to that effect. Yeah. Uh, they haven't confirmed the venue as yet, oh, but right. uh, there were three workshop series. So we were Brimbank, there's also Whittlesea and Shepparton, so they'll come together for the big event. All right. All right, beautiful. Are you ready? Yeah, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> okay, so um, this is about spirituality. So, um, yeah, peace of mind, call it serenity, call it nature in its own existence. Love, forgiveness, in reality, brings us back beyond divinity. 
to withstand, to understand, to relate to others, is to coexist way beyond our simple human mind perceptions. Take me back to where I came from. I'm a part of the soil I stand on. Take me beyond the stars of the universe to a realm that far exists, yet stands in our own grasp. In every night's clear sky, so profound and majestic, lies my connection to nature. With your beauty so complex, my love for you is endless, a feeling of never-ending pleasure. Pleasure of the heart, outstanding correspondence, yet I feel your breeze brushing against my shoulders when you spread your wings around me and hold me tightly to your chest. Your calming breeze is like a singing nightingale to my ears. In my moments of desperation, I look beyond and there you catch me. Before I hit the ground, in those moments of utter self-resentments, I swim through your oceans like an angel in paradise, with closed eyes and absent feelings of despair. Yeah. I like that one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Um, we are just about out of time this morning, um, guys, but thank you very much for all coming in and yeah, sharing some of your poetry. Uh, if anybody is interested in finding out more about Common Grounds, do you have a website or some social media that people can go to? Yeah, so they hit us up on Facebook, just look for Common Ground uh, Poetry, or uh, on Instagram also, they're popping up there, Common Ground Poetry, and through Multicultural Arts Victoria, all the information will be there. We'll also share those on our Facebook page, uh, 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, if you want to find us there. Thank you to everyone who has uh, been on the show this morning. Uh, we had uh, Mike Reynolds, uh, we had Tess Lawley from Sin, uh, and we also had uh, segments from Asia Calling and... Uh, in your face. In your face. Thank you very much. It is Wednesday. Uh, it is heading for a top of 30 degrees today. Very sunny um, day. Uh, so I don't know, if you're outside, make sure to slip, slop, slap. Are we still doing that? Is that? Yeah, I guess so. You do that forever. Uh, see you later.